I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And this is Show Your Work. And it is after Thanksgiving in the United States. Welcome back, you guys. We We had a very quiet few days on the internet. We had our Thanksgiving in October, mm-hmm. but now that Thanksgiving is over for everyone in yes. North America, um, it's officially holiday season. So on our show, The Social, we're doing like holiday gift guides, holiday recipes. Um, and I specifically want to focus on holiday recipes because I have been behind the scenes engaged in a personal crusade, and now I'm taking it public. I will give Chrissy Teigen credit for this because she was public about this long before me. But I think, as you know, Duanna, my war against Turkey has been many, many years in the making. Right. Okay. I hate it. Yeah, you do. I uh, hate it. Like, that's point number two. That's a valid point number two, even though it's the same as point number one. And I think that people who claim to enjoy Turkey aren't actually enjoying Turkey per se. They're enjoying everything else, literal and figurative, like memories and company okay, well now and sides uh, that go with turkey. You're putting me in a position now because now… Are you, def- are you defending turkey? Here's what I'm going to say to you. I'm going… No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you how you feel, but I am honor bound to ask you, are you sure you've had good turkey? Have you had the turkey that is fresh and brined and sage rubbed and all the rest of it, have you gotten up under the skin of a turkey with the rub that goes up under there and then you leave it there for like two days and you get the shit under your nails and in your ring and then you've really prepared your turkey? Do you know that you are singing a refrain, chorus, whatever the musical term for it, that everybody sings, oh, not my turkey? No, that's not what I said. Whoa, whoa, Have you had the good turkey? There is no such thing. I'm not asking. Yes, I've had the fucking tur- kind of turkey. I've even had it deep fried. You know, like… I have not had deep fried turkey. I've heard, but yeah. yeah. And I'll eat a deep fried anything. Um, but my best friends bought a deep fryer that they have to use on no, their we didn't. fucking driveway. No, we didn't. Q and Fiona did. Uh, see? <laughs> like, see what happened there? I'm so hurt. Okay, go on. They bought um, uh, one of those, like, fucking things that… You know, on the internet, you have to be careful because it can burn down your house. Yeah, it's a staple do of yes. Thanksgiving episodes on TV. Right. You have to do it on your driveway. It deep fries the turkey. So that, like, to me, that is like the greasiest thing to do to it. And even then, it was boring as shit. Okay. Look, I am not trying to tell you how you feel about turkey. Thank I was, you. I, I wasn't. I was trying to ask you, you know, if you thought you'd explored all options. I'm not ready to say oh, everybody's wrong about turkey. Maybe maybe some people like that taste. Maybe a million things. I do find that turkey has an extremely satisfying chew. That's my feeling about things. I really like, and look, I'm going to be real honest. I like the turkey um, 
like the cuttings, you know, the day after almost more than the day itself. Although I will fight to the death for potato stuffing, which is so much better than all these terrible stuffings that people use. My potato stuffing is fucking kick-ass. But I I like stuffing. I don't like turkey. But I like a turkey the day after when it's kind of cold from the fridge and you sneak it from under the foil and like somebody's like, are you in the fridge? Is a very satisfying chew. It's almost a more satisfying chew than a taste even. Gross. I Here's my final point, which I have made before, but I will say it verbally so people, the world can hear me. There has never been someone who like for their last meal, you're never going to eat again has requested turkey. No, I'll absolutely. That is my slam dunk argument against turkey for all the people who are like hallelujahing up and down being like, I love turkey so much. No, you don't. All right, you don't so, love it so much. So what are you doing about it? You said you're on a crusade. So what are you doing about this? Well, I have to endure the turkey. Why? Because this is, so we alternate Christmas years Um, sometimes we spend Christmas in Toronto and sometimes we spend Christmas in Vancouver. This is a Vancouver Christmas. I don't get to control the menu. Um, so my mother-in-law is controlling the menu and it's going to be turkey. I will say too that I grew up, here's my thing about it. I have such a strong memory of hanging out with these two dudes. This one guy that I was trying to, um, you know, we were trying to start something up or whatnot. Lance romance, as they say. Pardon me? (laughs) That's, you know what? That's our friend Dylan's expression that I took from him. Like when you're, as you are describing it, you're trying to get something romantic going or something thir- something flirty going. He says Lance Romance. Amazing. Yeah. So yes, I'm trying to Lance Romance, yeah. but because everybody in this scenario is like 21 or two and has no idea how to do anything, um, I was tolerating his horrible roommate sitting around and we were talking about Thanksgiving or something and I said, oh yeah, and we have... Uh, snow peas, and we have uh, sautéed portobello mushrooms and all these things that are staples. And this awful roommate got so mad and was like, those aren't Thanksgiving foods. Thanksgiving foods are corn and mashed potatoes. I got food shamed for what were really pretty pedestrian choices on our side table. But I have since learned, even though he was wrong, uh, that in my house, we always did things differently. Like we have a really dark brown gravy. Don't come near me with your chicken gravy. I don't like your pale gravy. It's not for me. Um, and well, the, yeah, the dark brown gravy. Should people be have dark. that pale chickeny. It looks like gravy. stock. It, what does the pale one? Yeah, it's not good. No, and, and it has to be thick. Yes, I agree. And um, yeah, the potato stuffing and the whatnot. So, like, look, I only like it my way. I'm not ready to. Uh, you know, rescind turkey for the rest of my days. You feel free. I'm not going to serve you any. But uh, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. So I am just giving everybody a warning. Once in a while, I'll just be casually dropping in some turkey hate. Well, that's For the next month. I think before you can talk about holidays, though, you have to have your house done. Your stuff is not up. I'm braggy. We have everything up already. It's wow. Still, I know. You're impressed. I, you should be. Partly it's because, you know, there's going to be some traveling, so we had to go now or not at all. Even the outside lights are up. I feel very excited at how on the ball I am. Yeah, we're behind because I usually do it on a weekend, and I've had to work the last few weekends, and I'm working next weekend. So, yeah, this might be a Yassic solo project. Although it always is a Yassic solo project, come to think of it. 
I, you know, I'm just saying, like, select your theme for the tree, which ornaments are going up, what's happening, I get it going. I actually don't get a say. You don't get a say. He color themes and selects the theme of the tree every year. I would not be able to let go of that particular part of control. Would not be okay for yeah, me. Yeah, he is. and But the problem with him is that, and I had this little domestic with him the other day, is he doesn't give it advanced thought. Like, we're going to put the tree up in about six days, probably next Saturday. And I bet you he hasn't thought about his color scheme yet. Well, if you have all the colors there, you can just select. I get that. No, but we sometimes have to buy to supplement depending on what he decides the color theme is going to be. So then what's the problem? Go get the new thing. But he's deciding right there, like when we're in the store. That to me is not good preparation. When you design something, you're like designing in your mind first. Oh, I thought you meant that he looks at the stuff and is like, eh, I need purple. And no. Goes okay, no. interesting. Yeah, he hasn't thought about the color scheme. Anyway, I'm not going to stress about it. There are too many. I already have so much to do. So yeah, if you come over next time and the tree is ugly, you know who not to blame. Well, if you're throwing out turkey, I'm just going to say it. You can all come at me. I'm throwing out blue ornaments. Don't like them. Nope. Don't want them. Get them out of here. Um, I'm going to stamp it and live with that, and I feel fine about it. I support that. Thank you. I support that. Also, don't love green. I don't mind a green. I think the way for green to work, as I've deployed this year to excellent effect, you need many greens so that it's not just red, green, red, yeah. green. Sure. Many greens to have a tone on tone, but also green is a real special thing for me. As you know, I'm not yeah. going to let it go. Um, so it's it's more and varied rather than I don't have an olive Christmas ornament. I should I should get into an, some olive color Christmas. Oh, ornaments. I'm like Mariah Carey. Like, have you noticed the Queen of Christmas? Christmas is only like white and red. Oh, of and course. Gold. Like yeah. she is not doing green. Right, I get that. Like and the traditional Christmas colors are what red, green. Silver, she'll do a silver, gold. gold. But green's in there. Right. Not for her. Right. And she's the queen of Christmas. Yeah. No, (laughs) she's just decided it doesn't work for her. (laughs) No. But, you know, yeah, if you're going to add it some sophistication, uh, tone on tone is my recommendation. Can also work for your reds if you're feeling a little bored. Get all the way from the burgundy right up to the the light reds, as my father once referred to pink. (laughs) (laughs) You're making an outfit now. It's true. Uh, So this has been Christmas Decor and Domestics. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Why don't we get into the meat of the work? Yeah. So I pitched this to you. Which usually means that I'm about to be talked into something. (laughs) When you hold off and pitch me something like at the last minute, it's usually like, but wait, 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 it's going to be great. So yeah, you really had this one all worked out. Well, it's because... A lot of the conversation around pop culture these days and for the last few years has been the death of the movie star, that movie stars aren't created anymore or as frequently. And that, I mean, there are a lot of factors, right? There's the fragmentation of entertainment to begin with. We spend lots more time watching TV and series now. Because they're great. Because, yeah, there aren't great movies, partly because Mm -hmm. of that fragmentation that you're talking about has sent everything either to superhero movies or tiny, tiny indies, nothing in between. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why, yes, we watch more TV and there are more movie stars, quote unquote, on it. And then because we watch more TV and there's so much TV, our tastes are all fractured as well. You're into the Americans. I might be into elite. 
You might be watching this series. I might be watching another series. There's so much that each of us gets segmented into our faves. Right. And I wouldn't even say that it's a taste where you're not into what I'm not into, but we all only have X number of hours a week. That's right. And there are things on the list. Somebody recently said, and I may have said it on the podcast before, that now people talk not about, oh, I have to watch that next, but here's what I would watch if I had time. Yeah. So back in the day, when there were fewer options, more people knew what the biggest movie was. Yes. And more people had seen it. More people would know, like, what the scene was that people were talking about. The water cooler talk was more limited, or at least everybody could participate in it in the same way. Um, And so it's become more and more rare. Would you say that peaked with Titanic? Was that the last movie that everybody saw? I mean, if you're going with numbers, like a lot, a lot, a lot of people saw Avatar. Yeah, true. I mean, the box office would suggest that, right? Yeah. And put it this way, nobody went to see Avatar five times the way they did with Titanic. That's right. So singular viewings of Avatar would add up to a lot of people. I have never seen Avatar. Me neither. Um, hey, so look, we are in the very, very, very minority, I think. Like, the three of us here may be the only people on this block. Right. Because Yasik hasn't seen it either. Uh, well, if we're getting into it, uh, Mike saw it uh, on a week when he was off between jobs, like he was about to start a new job, and he's like, I have a week off. Right. And he went to see it and was so mad that he spent a whole afternoon <laughs> that way. It's still very, very bitter. Yeah. I, I asked this question not too long ago, like, do people really care about Avatar in the way that there's two sequels? But anyway, interestingly enough, Avatar did not spin off a movie star. Like, as big as that box office was… Zoe Saldana, sure. I mean, people know her, but I wouldn't say that Zoe Saldana is a movie star. She certainly wasn't M. launched. No, capital M, capital S. I Sam, what's his face? Uh, okay, well, that's a point. Like, I can't remember his name. So Sam something. He was in Avatar. So not a movie star. Um, so I guess to your point, yeah, Titanic. A little bit, you know. Um, I'm sure there are others in the mid-2000s that were missing, but the fact that they're not coming to mind Mm -hmm. is kind of the point. Certain movies or certain movie stars have been created since Titanic, but when you're talking about a movie that elevates, like launches a movie star just based on that movie, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe super bad, which certainly is not a big everybody-saw-it movie, but it launched at least three careers yeah. off the top of my head, maybe more. So, you know, there's something to be said for that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different game, for sure. It's a different game. Like, for instance, Jennifer Lawrence is a movie star. We just don't associate her with one movie that, like, catapulted her. Well, She's and, more like the personality. Well, I mean, I remember Jennifer Lawrence happening because of Winter's Bone, but nobody saw Winter's Bone. That's right. We all saw Winter's Bone. I saw it, but I saw it after the fact, after her first Oscars. Yeah. And then, of course, Hunger Games happened, and we know what happened right. from there. But we didn't see Winter's Bone like we all saw Pretty Woman. And then went, <gasps> uh-huh. oh. Yeah. So, but 100%, Jennifer Lawrence is a movie star, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I'm not sure since then there has been a pace of creation of movie stardom the way we used to see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there are people who, regardless of the way they came up, 
were always gonna be movie stars and we knew it. And I think about George Clooney, who was in ER for several seasons. And yep. yes, yes, Facts of Life. I know people. But it was very clear early on that he was going to be a movie star. His good movies were immediately beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody remembers Out of Sight. His yep. bad movies were quickly forgotten. Uh, the, you know, the O Brothers, if that's your badness, or of course, Batman, mm-hmm. uh, which was his Batman? Um, one of them, a nipple yeah. one. Yeah. Um, you know, those don't stick to him. He was always going to be a movie star. It was yeah. super clear, right? Yeah. And I think there are other people who are are similar, who were always going to be movie stars regardless of where they came from. So I thought it'd be interesting this week to talk about the emergence of a new movie star. And that is on the heels of the very successful record-breaking box office for Creed II, now a proper franchise. There's two movies. It's undeniable that a third movie is going to be greenlit. I mean, you don't break records at the Thanksgiving box office and prove that there's an audience for it without being like the studio's like, oh, we got to make another one. If you can get everybody in place. But yeah, go on. Michael B. Jordan. Um, This is the second blockbuster record-breaking film that he's been in this year. Mm-hmm. Um, on name recognition and on having a non-superhero franchise, that also doesn't happen anymore. Like, do you remember when movie stars were created on franchises? Rocky. Of course. Sure. Die Hard. I guess. I I know that's not your movie. It is a Christmas movie, by the I way. Know, it's time I know to it's start Christmas watching movie. Die Hard. I look, I but even that is a franchise. I'm gonna contribute here and say that I have I love a band that's like a joke band and they have their arguably biggest hit, which is they're not a huge band or even a notable band, is a song about Die Hard and it's a great song. Right. Um, And so that's where I got my Die Hard education. I know it's a thing. It's a franchise. I get it. It's just not my favorite. But here we are with Michael B. Jordan. And yes, you're right. All the boxes are ticked. Can open a movie? Yes, sure. Yeah. Biggest box office of the year twice in one year. Yes, sure. There he is. Is he super compelling and gorgeous on magazine covers, which is one of those other tenets of of being a movie star? 100%. So I thought it'd be interesting to like go back and be like, did we see this coming all the way? And what the path to movie stardom for Michael B. Jordan looked like? Where was the work? Where were the mistakes? Were there mistakes? Well, look, there may have been missteps, but I don't know if there were mistakes. But here's the thing. Now that we're talking about this, and as you say, that you pitched me uh, when we walked in the door, uh, it can it can backfire on you because I'm going to go back and I have his IMDb here. I'm excited for this exercise. But of course, Michael B. Jordan became a movie star on television. Mm-hmm. And it's great to watch. Yes. So, okay, let's roll all the way back. Yeah. The first credit in 1999 Mm -hmm. when, according to my notes, he would have been 18, which seems old. 18. Oh, 1981 was he born? 87. Is my math a problem? He was born in 87? 87. Then he would have been 12 in 1999. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Michael B. Jordan 
was 12. Mm -hmm. In the first credit in 1999, uh, when he is credited as Rideland Kid in The Sopranos. So I just finished watching The Sopranos for the first time. Do you remember seeing him? I don't. And I do remember the Blink and You'll Miss It Lin-Manuel Miranda appearance, which is one of his first uh, appearances. (laughs) But I don't remember Rideland Kid. I'm not sure if Rideland Kid even got a line. So yeah, he was 12. Yep. And then we continue. And then we continue. Uh, Do we want to just jump right to 2002 and The Wire? Yes, absolutely. So... If you don't know, if you haven't watched, Michael B. Jordan not only had a really showy role in The Wire in the first season, um, he also arguably had the most, would you call it the most iconic phrase out of The Wire? I would say so. Right? Yeah. For The Uninitiated, we are talking about, yo, string, where's Wallace? Yep. And if you type that into your browser, if you know nothing, I assume all of the memes will come up. Mm -hmm. And it is... So I guess he didn't really create that line because, of course, Michael B. Jordan was Wallace. Right. He's the subject of the most yes. iconic line of The Wire. And so he would have been 15 if we're going from 99 to 2002, 15 years old. Let's call it 14-ish, 15, right? Depending yeah, when on you're like, shooting and whatever. Exactly. And in between there, uh, he had done an episode of Cosby. Uh, he had been teen number two in something called Black and White. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd had uh, a role in a movie called Hardball, but really nothing big before he got a really iconic role in a really iconic series still now. I don't know what your feelings are on The Wire now. Um, I enjoyed it, but I would say maybe only the first season is absolutely essential viewing. I like I agree. It's good, mm-hmm. but it's not like I know how some people speak about the wire. It's almost religious. Mm-hmm. I don't have that feeling. I think it introduced a lot of people to a lot of places. But oh yeah. Here's the other thing in our business, and I suspect in everybody's business, um, it's important to know a lot of shows and it's important to have seen a lot of things, but not everybody watches everything. They watch enough yep. to know what's up. And then they move on because there's other stuff to watch. And that's why season one featuring Michael B. Jordan, uh, spoiler, he does not appear after season one, um, is the most iconic. I swear, if people yell at us about that for a show that was on 16 years ago. Oh my God, that'll be amazing. Oh God. Okay. Anyway. But the next entry that I think you're going to hit on Mm -hmm. is, to me, the most important. Yes. So, go. It's three years... And 59 episodes on All My Children. Bang. Guys, we've talked about this once or twice on the show before, right? Yes. The reason that this is so interesting is because there is no work like soap work. No work. Soaps are taped daily. It's an hour. It's taped daily. Those long conversations that are happening in rooms are given to... (laughs) Long conversations um, happening in rooms is basically what a soap opera is. Well, it has in to be. America. Because if you're going to roll on a show every single day, it has to be shootable. It has to be understandable. There are really sophisticated ways that the sets are set up uh, so that the cameras can move from yeah. one to the other. And it's not an accident that soaps are or were taped almost universally in New York because guess why? Soaps are often staffed with 
theater actors, people mm-hmm. who know how to memorize a lot of dialogue, yeah. who know where to go and how to move, and they're taped kind of like a play. Yeah. So there is no greater workout, no greater training yep. than having to hit your mark every day for 59 episodes. It's a classroom for sure. And that soap environment, again, where as you talked about it, as you described it, it's people talking in rooms. There's no action. It's real. And there are not really that many pan shots. No. It's all close up. Yeah. It's the classic over the shoulder shot. You're over there. I'm over here. And then when it's really fancy, it's actually your back is turned. And then maybe when you turn around, we shift the focus from me in the foreground Mm -hmm. to you in the background. Like that's high level art. It's not a lot of, for instance, like visual sophistication, but what you're getting is people who have to memorize pages and pages of dialogue a day. Like remember on a film set, sometimes you shoot two scenes a day. Maybe. Maybe. It's very common to be called in for one scene. Yeah. And if you're playing dead in that scene, or (laughs) if you have a fight and storm out, then you might just say, fine, fuck you, bye, and leave and slam the door 40 times, and that's your day. You might, on a film set, get to deliver a paragraph. On a soap, 59 episodes, every day, what you're doing is you are delivering like a hundred paragraphs. Absolutely, because it's that's all there is. As you say, there's not a lot of art. There's not transitions. There isn't yeah. music. So all there is is writing and acting. Writing and acting and close-up. So you're delivering that dialogue convincingly. Mm-hmm. You are playing off your scene partner. Mm-hmm. It's uh, zoom in on your face. So you have to convey your surprise when the person turns out to be the twin and who came back from the dead and not make it cheesy, but well, a little cheesy. But here's what's so interesting about that. I don't want to cut you off in the middle of your flow. Please. But that's what makes great actors out of soaps. Look, the elephant in the room is that soaps go on for years and years and like no time passes except sometimes a kid grows from being two to being 12 in like an afternoon. Um, it's preposterous, some of the storylines, right? It has to be to keep people interested. But the actors have to sell it. Mm-hmm. If they were phoning it in, if they were acting as though they didn't believe those crazy twists and turns then you wouldn't watch. You would leave. So the actor's job, and often it's young actors, he would have been a teenager around this time, and he's far from the only teenager to have come up on soaps. Your job is to find the believability in the nonsense. Yeah. And with all respect to my peers who write soaps, like sometimes it's nonsense. We all know this. And you start to find the honesty in the moments so that people keep watching. What's interesting is that both he, Michael B. Jordan, and Chadwick Boseman both did soaps. Uh, Michael is a little bit younger than Chadwick Boseman, probably like by a decade, maybe a le- maybe even a little bit more. But they both, along their paths to you know superhero stardom and movie stardom, had to spend some time on soaps. Neither one of them speaks super fondly. Like they're not out there being like, "Oh my god, I loved it so much." When they talk about it, it's in practical terms. It's this is what I needed to do. This is where I grinded it out, you know. And um, to your point, Duanna, 
this is where the training happens, and they're not the only two. There are so many Oscar-winning actors and actresses who cut their teeth on soaps. The first one that comes to mind, Julianne Moore. Absolutely. Yeah. And wouldn't say a bad word about it either. Like, again, you know what it is? It's kind of like being a teenager. You know how we say often, God, I'm glad social media wasn't around when I was a teenager so I could kind of make all my mistakes in private or relative private? Mm -hmm. That's like a soap. Ultimately, nobody's watching. Um, The people who make decisions and do casting, even if they're interested in you, are not watching their stories an hour a day every day. It's impossible. But that means that with nobody watching, you get to make mistakes. You get to learn. You get to learn to hit your mark and find your light and all those things so that when you get the next opportunity, you are ready. Yep. And you're not making all those big mistakes on a first time set. Like all credit to like, I don't know, Dakota Fanning, but it's hard to make all those big, big decisions and learning mistakes when there are a million dollars a minute clicking by and people looking at you funny. So- Moving on from All My Children, yep. are we landing next on where we're landing? Well, it's interesting because I know where we're landing or mm-hmm. where we think we're landing, but in between uh, All My Children and the next big place on the timeline, I feel like we're in that family tree podcast uh, yeah. that tells you who you're related to, there's a show called The Assistants mm-hmm. that I don't think anybody saw. I've certainly, I've never heard of it. I'm sure I could look around and see who's on it. But another 13 episodes there, meaning more training. Yep. And then. And then. We're there. We're in Dillon, Texas. <sighs> okay. We just have to break this down for uh-huh. a second. So if you remember, if you haven't seen Friday Night Lights at this point, get the fuck out. Like, who am I kidding? <laughs> yeah. If you are listening to this podcast yeah. and you like to talk to us and you haven't seen it, <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah. Let me just take you on a journey. I'm here. Friday Night Lights had had three seasons. Mm-hmm. The Dylan Panthers, led by Coach Taylor, mm-hmm. had had three seasons. They had won a state championship. Mm-hmm. They had had one that was cut off. They didn't get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the third season, amid a good season, there was gerrymandering of districts. There was problems. All of Coach Taylor's work was going to, down to be all for naught. And part of what was happening there was that the show knew it might not get renewed. So they were trying to do an out that was bittersweet and true to the show. And pour one out for the writers of Friday Night Lights, who, even though they thought it might be over, didn't give in to a happy ending. And then... And I want people to know that as you're speaking right now, my eyes are closed. Like, I am feeling you imbue me with the spirit. Oh, I've never felt closer to preaching. Yeah. And then, do you remember the first shot? So I was waiting. You were waiting for the season four long-awaited, maybe not going to happen premiere of Friday Night Lights. Right. And just to like really compound your yeah, point. Yeah, come on in. And pa- like really, really nail it. We loved the Panthers. Loved. That's where we were. That's where we lived. And what they had to do now is essentially make us break up so with the Panthers. Yeah. I mean, look, I have pictures at the Friday Night Light Herman Field. I have 
tickets from the actual show that were used as props. We were deep, deep into Panther love. And if you know me, I am wearing a football toque as we speak. And that's really partly because of what the Panthers did for for me, uh, what the town and the dream did. That's right. And so now we're giving up the town. We're giving up the Panthers. And we are moving east. Well. And we even have new callers. But here's how they did it. It was an impossible thing to say. Yes, you've built a show for three seasons on this one brand, this one team, and you have all these graduates leaving. Like they'd done the thing with high school where they can't keep people around anymore. You're losing your Taylor Kitsch and your uh, Matt Saracen, who's played by uh, Zach Guilford, and all the people who really made the show run. And yeah, you're going to start again with a whole new team on another part of town. And here's how they did it. Here's why they knew they could do it. We open on a dusty dirt road somewhere, we think, in Dillon, Texas. And then we hear a shout. And out of fucking nowhere, like a shot, comes this figure streaking, pretty sure he was shirtless, running. I I can see an underpass. Yeah. Right? Running for all the fuck he's worth in the sunshine. And police cars are following Mm -hmm. him. And he is running, and you think he's going to outrun the cops. And they finally catch him, and they collar him. And that is how we meet Vince Howard. Yes. Michael B. Jordan. Movie star in the making. Who is going to usher us through the final two seasons of Friday Night Lights, which are arguably the, the show's finest hours. Yes. They are what the oh, show was I just always got built to be. I just got goosebumps. Yes. And it was hard, right? Like after weird murder season. Uh, the weird murder is everybody knows that yeah. was a, a, that's an example of a public mistake that you wish you hadn't made in public, yeah. but you did. It happened. But they brought it around. It still didn't have the magic of season one. And then we were like, oh my God, like, can we really have magic again? Season three was close to magic. And then they ripped it all away from you at the end. And, but then like it became, to me, my heart is... Seasons four and five. The Dylan Lions. Red Lions. Anchored by Vince Howard, a kid from the wrong side of the tracks with trouble that Coach Taylor had never seen. Yep. Became the heart of everything that yep. we had learned, that we citified city dwellers had learned about Texas football mm-hmm. and about never giving up and about clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And the reason from a from a financial standpoint, from a an investment from the broadcasters of can you do this? Can you sustain this show? The reason that they were able to do that is because they knew they had Kyle Chandler. They knew they had Connie Britton. That wasn't going to change. But you need the kid that's going to anchor it for you. And I would venture that the show was greenlit for two more seasons based solely on the talent of Michael B. Jordan. And that's where we are so far. I mean, I thought you were going to say let's, we can end there because we almost could. Like he really at that point, he was a marquee while still, here's the difference between television and movies. He was still blending in the show. He was still an essential part of the show. It wasn't, even though I've just preached and I feel real good about it, um, he was not the sole focus of the show. We were allowed to have our hearts in many places, but without him, it would not have worked. Well, there had to be something special. 
as you said, there had to be a spark of how are we going to go forward? How are we going to, how are we going to get our audience to come with us to literally abandon the colors that we liked, the team name that we liked and go East to the red ball cap, the East on the cap, and to start investing in somebody else after these three seasons. And they almost became like cult iconic, right? Oh, absolutely. Right? Six. Uh, oh, I don't six. Know. Uh, yeah. Lila. Yeah. Riggins. All of that. It almost became iconic. And you do need that it factor. I and mean, that is a term we don't say much anymore, but that it factor is what they saw in Michael B. Jordan. Look, we did not come here to do a deep dive on Friday Night Lights, even though I will do it any day. But here's what's skillful about it. We, the viewers, had had all that love and passion. We had been a part of all of that dream that Dylan Texas had for the Panthers. So when the Lions didn't have that, we became that. You want them to win. You want to be their boosters. You want them so hard to win, to be there, to feel those feelings. But they have to be worth it. He was worth it. And you're right. We can pretty much end it there with like a small note about starting in the business young. Mm -hmm. 1999, we determined he was 12 years old. That's right. And over time, over the episodes, we have talked about child stardom Mm -hmm. and where it can go wrong Mm -hmm. sometimes. A lot of times. A lot of times. That said, what we just did in talking about the progression, where he started, premium cable TV, right? The Wire. Mm -hmm. Um, Moving on to soaps. Yeah. It almost was, it almost feels like, yeah, maybe the way that you avoid it you sidestep the calamity and all the other shit that we have talked about associated with child stardom is to actually follow the yeoman's journey of acting. If you can. I mean, I think what's really interesting about what you just said is child star. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. He wasn't a star. No. He wasn't a known name. Even up to and into some of the movies that we will mention – he wasn't a name yet. I think that's really different than being, uh, you know, one of the sweet life of Zach and Cody, where the whole show is built around you. That's different than being Jamie Lynn Spears and having Zoe 101 built for you when you are 13. Yep. Uh, you know, it's a different thing when the things that you're working on are made for adults because there are two factors. Number one, if, you, if what you're working on is made for adults, you are damn well going to be held to adult standards. Mm-hmm. And that means adult professionalism mm-hmm. and timing and knowing your lines and all the rest of it. Yep. And number two, you're not the focus. So if it's not working, you're not going to stick around long. Well, I really like this distinction that you've made, made for adults. Because the easiest current day example that I can come up with right now is Millie Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the same age progression. Like how old she is now would be how old Michael B. Jordan was with The Wire. Yep. But Stranger Things, is it made for adults? Uh, it's not in the way The Wire was. No, it's made for adults who are remembering being kids. It is nostalgia. It's a mm-hmm. period piece. It's taking today's adults back to 1983. And the kids are at the front of it in the way that they were in The Goonies, in E.T., in those kinds of para sci-fi adventures. Do not come at me with the Winona Ryder storyline. Like, I know, but come on. Yeah. 
But no, it's about the kids and the kids are the stars and we talk about the new kids on the show each year. So yeah, I would say it's made for kids and ergo, she is a child star. They're all child stars. Well, I mean, what we've established here though is, as you said, made for adults, his training ground with, you know, that first show, then going into The Wire, then going into All My Children, that setting up his teen years, adolescence, young adulthood. What I'm trying to say now is that at 32, a very young, on the low end of 30s, stepping into his proper movie stardom, I think he has durability. Yeah, I agree All of that is, yeah, something stable, something durable. Well, he has a well to draw from, right? Like he has had so many experiences. Even if we skip over uh, what arguably might be the only misstep on his resume, and it's not really his fault, which is parenthood. Um, Oh, no, I wasn't thinking you were going to say that, but I think that on on the television side, sure. uh, Look, I loved parenthood very, very much, but that was a case where his charisma and uh, magnetism and movie starness, if you will, was outsizing the situation and the role. Uh, He was sort of a tertiary character because the creators, of course, were the same people who wrote Friday Night Lights, but he he wasn't sidelined, but he wasn't a big enough character to warrant yeah. His screen presence, and I think it didn't totally work. But as you said, he didn't wear it. No. And then we go. One, I I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking a misstep would be Fantastic Four, which well, we'll he also there, didn't wear. Which he also didn't wear. But after Friday Night Lights, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven credits before Fruitvale Station, mm-hmm. which of course was the breakout in the sense that it was a huge movie. It was the first pairing of he and Ryan Coogler. Yeah. Uh, it was not a huge movie. In the sense, it was a tiny little indie about uh, a true sequence of events. Um, but it was his first movie that was him alone. He's almost the only person in it. Uh, the other people are somewhat incidental. Octavia Spencer plays his mom, but it's a fairly small appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He anchors that movie. And that was the first one. And based on the other things that we see here, you know, he certainly wasn't doing it to make money. No. I don't know what his salary was, but I would say it was in the low five figures for a movie like that at that time. It's a smart choice. I will say um, it's worth mentioning a movie called Chronicle. Mm -hmm. It did quite well at the box office. It was a modest to surprising hit. He didn't carry it, as you say. Um, however, he did really showcase some great work in that movie. I remember thinking, oh my God, Vince is so good in this movie. And it was a connection that he made. Josh Trank directed that movie and went on to direct Fantastic Four. So even though we are only noticing these things coming out now, he was doing work, right? He was reaching out with young filmmakers, people his age, contemporaries, Signing on to like new ideas, new movies, new supernatural, like twisty um, storylines. But all of those were in service of like knowing more people, getting himself out there. Look, there are seven credits, as I said, between Friday Night Lights, maybe eight, and Fruitvale Station, uh, of which Chronicle is one. Mm-hmm. Then there are another five credits between Fruitvale Station and Fantastic Four. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was never not working. He was always working. 
it looks, you know, and this is the kind of thing that could be, it could be seen as, oh, he'll take anything. Most notably, there's actually a credit here for making a scene, which is a short in 2013, where he plays man. Guys, like he was, he was a working actor by this point. He had a quote. He didn't have to play man in a short, even though I'm sure when I click on it, it'll be like, it was directed by Scorsese, but he was always working. He tries a romantic comedy. He does the boondocks. And then of course, Fantastic Four, as you point out, which was a, it was like, was was it a disaster or was it a fizzle? It was a disaster. It was a bomb. But you know what? As we said, he didn't wear it. And one of the reasons he didn't wear it was it came out the same year as Creed. So what are you going to do? And Creed, here's the thing. You started off saying, well, now it's a franchise. Mm -hmm. But it had to be a risk also. This was resurrecting the beloved Rocky franchise. And don't yell at me, people, who it's like, it's not the same one. It's a different new whatever. It's the same thing. Yes. It is part of the Rocky, like, family. Yeah, for sure. Um, Rocky is in it. (laughs) So. Okay. So here's my question. Had it not worked, Mm -hmm. had it not been a success, would that have sunk his career? Would that have been the bomb? Let me, let me take it a different way. Mm -hmm. How about this? Um, Creed, we have to give the credit of Creed to Ryan Coogler. Oh, so yes. Who, of course, Ryan Coogler being smart, knew that he could put Michael B. Jordan in the movie and it could rely on him to deliver. That's right. So they did Fruitvale together. Then they go on to do Creed. Creed was a passion project for Ryan Coogler. He dedicated it to his dad. So he rewrote it or he sort of modernized it for the 2015 audience. It worked really, really well. But to answer your question in this roundabout way, Ryan Coogler did not do Creed 2. Yep. A new director, new writing. Ryan Coogler had no involvement because, of course, he was too busy working on Black Panther. So when you set up something very successfully, and I think Michael B. Jordan would give a lot of the percentage of the success to Coogler. Oh, and I'm not trying to take it from him. No, but then you have to carry it on without Ryan Coogler. That is, to answer your question, Duanna, a testament to his movie stardom and his responsibility for this franchise. A hundred percent. And, you know, here's another thing that's interesting when you talk about franchises. Peppered throughout this IMDb, and this is fun. We should do this with other people sometimes. Just comb through the IMDb. Peppered through the IMDb, both before and after Creed, there are video game voices. Mm -hmm. There are short films. There are several short films. There are voices. He's never not working. And again, by this point, he's making an okay living. Yeah. We never see shots of him like on the beach in Cabo. Maybe he goes, but he's not taking all the vacations. He's like, you know what? I got two weeks free. I can fit in voicing NBA 2K17. Or maybe they weren't noticing the paparazzi. Maybe that too. But look, there are people who are as famous as he is who don't have this much work. He's all the time filling the well so that he has things to draw from. And again, his the credit immediately before Creed 2 is Creed, Rise to Glory, the video game. And the credit immediately before that is Kin, in which he plays a male cleaner. Like, again, these are not high-profile 
glamorous roles. He's no questions asked a mm-hmm. movie star, yeah. but he's not too big to take a small role if it's going to benefit him or, as you said, build a relationship, get him to meet people, which I love. So I guess what I'm trying to say is because this doesn't happen very often, as we established, movie stars aren't made with the frequency that they were before. This is really exciting. Like I saw Creed last week on Friday and I texted you literally the minute the the film ended and I was like coming out of my skin. I was like, fuck Michael B. Jordan. Like, wow, because he pops. And I would say that's also true in Black Panther, right? Like he scene stealer. You're prepared for the villain to be kind of juicy but he's magnetic every time you're on the screen, even though you know you're supposed to hate him with everything in your being. And that's like the Coogler-MBJ relationship because, listen, I'm not trying to take anything away from the superhero Black Panther T'Challa, but like you've kind of, it's made for that to be a popular character. Yeah, it's called Black Panther. Like you're gonna like that guy. The work or the difficulty, the challenge, right? The high degree of difficulty, the triple axle is in casting the villain who is charismatic, who can do the work, but that who by the end of it, you are you feel so complicated about, who might be the shit of the, like, you know, that movie is nothing without that villain. Michael B. Jordan enters Friday Night Lights as the villain. Yes. I just want to point that out. Mm-hmm. But that is a skill he's been honing, even that skill he's been honing for decades, coming in as the fucking asshole that you cannot stand and making you love him because you can't look away. So that's great. He's a movie star. Here's my question to you always, and you get mad at me. Now what? Now what? If you are a movie star, if he's the one who's gotten you the most excited in however long, now what? What's he going to do? More franchises? He's got a couple under his belt and undoubtedly, you know, there's going to be some sort of, there must be some sort of killmonger the early years retrospective in the works, right? They're not going to throw that out with the bathwater, right, Marvel? Well, and there's more work with Ryan Coogler. Mm-hmm. Um, the franchise, that money, as they all say, as all movie stars do, the big franchises allow you to do the smaller work. And you know, I don't feel any, any discomfort that he's not going to do the smaller pictures. Some people you're like, oh yeah, the, the small stuff is not going to see him for dust. But I, I believe that that's the case. He's also, of course, the executive producer of two different TV series that are currently in production, Raising Dion and David Makes Man. He has designs on all aspects of this industry. And remember, he was one of the first, if not the first, to come out after the Oscars and Francis McDormand to be like, yep, inclusion writer. My production company is doing the inclusion writer. We're committed to diversity. And I've actually, let me show you the ways in which I'm already making it happen. So, but here's the thing. We started off talking about... uh, Rocky or George Clooney or Julia Roberts, either on or off off, uh, mic, we talked about her as a movie star. So the landscape is different. 
does he have to do anything differently than all those people who came before who were movie stars? If he's a movie star in an age where there aren't any or aren't as many, then what? Good question. Then what? Or is it a bigger responsibility to be a movie star now? I think it's definitely uh, a bigger responsibility in that you have to say more. You know, clicking on the self part of IMDb where, you know, where things where he's interviewed or played as himself, there are 81 credits and not all of them are entertainment tonight. Um, This is somebody who, yeah, has to speak, has to throw his money and his muscle behind things he cares about, who is going to be both in front of and behind the camera. But that's how you build the kind of a career that's going to last for ages because you never stop learning. God, it all comes down to that platitude, but it's so true. He's clearly not going to stop learning. Nope. I love I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. So this next story actually came to us from a reader named Diana who sent it to us and As soon as I saw her email, she wrote, assume this has already been flagged for you, but, and I went, ah, she's so right. That's exactly what we should do. I had read the tweet that she was talking about, but hadn't thought yet to send it to you. So thank you so much, Diana, for sending this, um, about Rachel Bloom's tweet. So Rachel Bloom wrote a tweet, uh, apparently apropos of nothing, uh, on her weekend. So she must've been watching something that reads... If I see one more TV show slash movie where a woman comes easily from penetration without having to touch her clit, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm on a broadcast network where I can't show any of that, so I can't necessarily rectify the situation, but fuck, I'm angry. If you're my parent, I assume that you have turned off the podcast at this point, but just in case, (laughs) this is not for you. So this is kind of groundbreaking on a number of levels. Rachel Bloom, of course, is the star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I often misname as my Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's not. It is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is on the CW. It is a deceptively light musical theater about a lot of things that women go through. And I wasn't there to see you read the tweet, but I can only imagine that your eyes lit up and you did your shaky dancing well, in your chair. Well, you know me. I'm always down to talk about sex and clitoris. The end. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to pluralize clitoris. <laughs> no, I just, clitoris needed its own and clitoris. Subject line, clitoris. You just don't want to stumble over clitorises. Clitorises, clits. Clits. Sure, there we go. I'm, yeah, we are like, We are getting right into it because if we're going to talk about clits, we're going to talk about clits. Yeah. And so, in fact, uh, she goes on. Her rant has three more tweets. I'm just going to quickly read them for you here. She replies to her own tweet and says, I get that some women can come from penetration, but we've seen a lot of that and very little of how the majority of women come. And even if you come from your clit rubbing on the person's body during sex, you never see any of that body adjustment slash partner communication in TV or film. So 
though we can't talk about it on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I promise you that every person Rebecca's enjoyed sex with knows about her clit and what gets her off. Same with Valencia, same with Heather, same with Paula. And even though I still, and even though I talk about this subject all the time, I still feel upset and inadequate that I can't orgasm from penetrative sex alone. I feel like less of a woman and a partner even now. Dude, Mm -hmm. if there is anything that starts off as seeming like a naughty um, kind of, you know, dirty words tweet and gets to a real place in four times 270 characters, I was floored by that. But also, it still goes back to the work. Oh, it's 100% about the work. Right. Because of the feelings of inadequacy, because she can't come just by penetration, have a lot to do with how sex for women and pleasure for women is presented in the industry that she currently is working on and is herself limited by. That's right. I think the most interesting thing here is… First of all, that she's using these words in, you know, a place where people are going to see them at 8.54 in the morning when they log on to their Twitter at work. And second, that she's talking about how against her will, she's kind of part of the problem. Yes. A sex scene on TV or in movies, you know how it goes. There's some kissing, there's some excitement and rolling on the bed, right? Yeah. Um, Sometimes we see a crunched up pair of jeans hit the floor. Uh, Or maybe these days you see like a bra coming off and a really revealing sort of part of a woman's chest, maybe even a stray nipple. Uh, And then what happens next? You know, he rolls on top. Yep. And then we see her face concentrating, thinking, and then, oh, things are happening. Mm -hmm. And then things are happening. And then it's amazing. And if we, if we get even that. Yeah. Because remember, the Americans, it cuts away and I don't see anything. That's not the issue here. Fine. But what you do see if you see things, yeah, his muscled back, right? Yeah. Moving so manlyly. And then it ends and everybody's super satisfied and sleeping in an L-shaped sheet. Yeah. You forget how pervasive it is that we see that all the time. And… Of course, we know, but forget, in television, more than in film, but in film too, there are network standards and practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who watch the cut who say, can you shave a few frames from here? Can you please change this so it's not so, what's the word, explicit here? And one of the first things to get policed is always women's sexuality. Yeah. Now, look, this is a double-edged sword, right? Because, of course, we talked only a few weeks ago about uh, intimacy coordinators. Right. People who are charged with making sure that women and men feel comfortable in their sex scenes. Of course. Right. But, I mean, are you as incensed by this as I am? Or is it something that you've always sort of had filed like, oh, yeah, that sucks. It's not realistic. I mean, I'm incensed by it. I just don't know how to get around it. Like, this is deeper than just broadcast standards. It's a societal, like, it's a societal North American and other parts of the world thing. Like, this is 
a bigger conversation about the priority of women's pleasure and also about how we're allowed to speak about sex, when we're allowed to speak about sex. I work on a live talk show in Canada um, that has to adhere to many, many broadcast standards. And whenever we talk about sex, we have to use very unsexy language. You know, when we're talking about masturbation, we have to we have to use words like masturbation, um, stimulation, penetration. We can't speak about it the way we talk about it in real life. Right. It's real clinical. It's clinical, which is a sense of removal and detachment, right? And you can't have sex talk or you can't move and advance sex forward without a sense of vulnerability and intimacy. Like if we're talking about sex like it's from a textbook, I don't know that we're going to get anywhere. And we have to speak like that on our show because if just one person complains to the Broadcast Council of Canada, our show gets fined. So there is a fusty, tight-ass pearl clutcher, man or woman, out there who would tut-tut-tut and huff-huff-huff if she were to see me or he were to see Cynthia say, yeah, like, you know, I just wish I could have rubbed one out the other night. Right. That would have, that would be, there's no swear words there or whatever, but that would be so offensive to whatever fucking tight ass that they would write and our show would suffer. So I don't know how we get around this. Well, I think this is one of those things where, uh, you know, Hollywood is often accused of patting itself on the back. But I think this is one of those situations where the normalization has to come from boundary pushers. Look, your show is on in the daytime. And so people have a certain set of expectations about what it is. Uh, Not unlike maybe the expectations based on soaps in our last story, Mm -hmm. in those kinds of sex scenes. Uh, Often what's happening even in prime time or later on broadcast television, as opposed to uh, cable, premium cable television, is that the standards and practices people are not just there to ruin your fun. They're there because they are worried about advertisers, Mm -hmm. that advertisers will pull out their money and then the show gets hurt in that way, as you point out. So what's interesting about that, though, is that the same rule doesn't apply to men. It's not across the board in terms of sexuality. I will tell a story that I feel comfortable telling because it is all over the internet, and it is about Drake's boner. One of the first episodes of Degrassi that I worked on focused on the character Jimmy, known colloquially as Wheelchair Jimmy, And it's an episode where, because he's attracted to a physiotherapist, he discovers that after his paralysis, he can still get boners. You see the boner. You have seen the boner on the internet. Yeah. And, you know, it was not trying to be exploitive. Uh, Drake, then Aubrey, was, I think, over 18, but still a young person. You're not trying to embarrass anybody. But, you know, it was what it was. And the whole tone was celebratory. Mm -hmm. And that is not something that happens on broadcast television or in movies for women yet. What you're saying is you can't think of a show involving teenagers where a girl like 
rubs it out for the first time? Well, actually, I can. Okay. And I didn't know that we were going to talk about this, but I watched one last night. I should be clear that later on, Degrassi did an episode where that was the the topic. But to your point, it was a lot more euphemistic and tied up in, you'll love this, it was tied up in Twilight. Right. Um, and it was really, uh, you know, it was it was what you could do at that time. But last night, I watched Big Mouth. Are you watching Big Mouth? I haven't yet, but I know. I need to get on it. My God, I love Big Mouth. And writer Jesse Klein, who's the lead female writer with Nick Kroll, has talked a lot about how when they were beginning to write the series, they you see dicks everywhere in every place. And somebody said, well, we can't see vaginas. And she was like, excuse me? We yeah. have to see vaginas. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, they get away with some of it because the characters are animated. But it is also such an honest portrayal of puberty and the sort of kid parts of you and the sex parts of you and how they're trying to wrestle for control. And, um... Yes, somebody rubs one out uh, yeah. quite actively, you know. But um, it's animated. Look, it's animated, yeah. but it's also honest. And it is, uh, there's, there isn't shame involved. Or yeah. if you've seen the episode, you know what I'm getting at. There is, but not in the way that we're used to. Right. So this is beginning the baby steps, but this is my point. First you do it in animation. You're right. It's not, uh, you know, young people or even adults doing it for their own pleasure. Often we see women, you know, clicking on a vibrator or you hear the sound of it behind a bedroom door and the frustrated husband goes downstairs, right? That's not, Rachel Bloom's point, of course, is not even just about female pleasure, but about the way that women behave during sex. And that we haven't seen yet. But my argument is it's not going to happen if we don't have these baby steps first. I hope so. I I actually feel like maybe the baby steps time is a course correction for the last 20 years because there are a lot of people who already think that like in the 90s and the early 2000s, we got away from the progress that we made in the 80s. If you think about movies that we watched in the 80s, there was a lot more sex. Like, think about all those Rob Lowe movies. Yeah, for sure. Um, like, I, I think about About Last Night, Rob Lowe and Demi Moore. Mm-hmm. There were great sex scenes in that movie. Were they hitting on and checking the boxes that Rachel Bloom's talking about? No. But what I'm saying is, on a basic level, relationships and movies about relationships involved sex, which is real life. Absolutely. And there were explicit sex scenes and they were long sex scenes and they were sexy sex scenes. There's a great sex scene in Youngblood, another Rob Lowe movie. And then somewhere along the line, as many writers and film critics pointed out, they started cutting the sex from movies so that sex scenes are very tame in film now. And so if you're talking about animation and Big Mouth and hopefully other shows as some kind of course correction, I hope so. Because like, we're actually not getting a lot of intimacy and, like, even good movie sex anymore. Yeah, but you just said it right there, intimacy, because I don't want more in movies because so many movies – look, I'm going to be so honest with you and so bald with you. So many movies are coming from a man's perspective. Even when you think about a movie that is intimate and sensitive like Brokeback Mountain – 
the mechanics of what was going on in some of the sex is spelled out for you in a way that it isn't for women, television has always been the neglected province of women until recently. Um, I always talk about this, but, and this is the least sexy thing to talk about, but Shonda Rhimes got things that were incredibly inflammatory past censors, partly because nobody was watching. They were thinking it was silly women's entertainment. And so I'm more interested in TV doing this, not so it can get to movies someday, but because I think that TV is the more intimate woman's portrayal anyway. Like even Black Swan, where Natalie Portman is masturbating, is so tinged with horror and fear and that she's doing something wrong. And I have more faith that a sexual relationship between two people is more likely to be accurate on, on TV than it is in film. The other thing I think about when I think about, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, then let me ask you, sure. I'm not here to argue with you that like television in some way is less than film. I'm saying that there's a trend, like that trend of sex in the eighties in movies, because movies were more important in the eighties than television is still indicative of a social perspective. That's what I'm saying to you. That social perspective started to reverse course so that a reflection in television is that everything is tame. If she's complaining about it, if Rachel Bloom is complaining about it, then the frontier that you claim television is trying to breach is clearly not being breached. Well, I actually think here's the thing though. I think it is, but it's happening under the radar. Here's another hugely sex-positive show that talks about how it works and shows how it works, Broad City. Amazing for sex and for sex that is sometimes intimate, but sometimes just fun and sometimes happening while other shit is going on. And nobody's paying attention because they're like, oh, that silly MTV show about stone girls. It's the barriers that can be broken sometimes when nobody's watching are arguably the most exciting. Like, look, let's put it the other way. I dare you to take a scene to Reese Witherspoon in a movie where it's like, okay, so now you're having a sex scene with this guy or this woman, and you have to rub yourself to help you come. I don't know that she would do that. Maybe she would, but I think that part of what we're talking about is a lot of people who have been conditioned to not look vulnerable that way. You use that great word about vulnerability. And and a lot of people who are conditioned to not want to be seen that way. And a people who are taking the risks kind of have less to lose in a way. They're on lower key networks. I feel as though I could be wrong, but I feel as though we've seen uh, either Molly or Issa in Insecure reaching their hands down to help themselves out when they were having sex. Uh, and it's those places where it's not as high profile and they get away with it partly because nobody's watching. Well, you've just reminded me of like one of the opening scenes in Tony Collette's new Wanderlust. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it opens with her, Tony and her on-screen husband and they try and do it and it doesn't happen. So he leaves to go take a shower and she's like, fuck, I'm just going to take care of myself. And then she gets interrupted by her kid. But I will say like, All of this leads back to you read the Rachel Bloom tweet and you were like, are you pissed? And like, 
aren't you mad? And are you mad? Because like, it doesn't sound like you're mad. Like what I'm saying is like, are you not mad because you're seeing it happening in the smaller shows? Or are you mad that its progression is not as quick as we want it to be? I am mad that even the things that we're talking about are only circling around the issue of what she's talking about. What she's talking about is super specific, but she's talking about the portrayal of straight sex, that the vast majority of straight sex is portrayed as having women not need to use anything other than the blessed dick they are spending time with to get there. Um, it's inaccurate is her point. And she would love to to correct that, but she's stymied by, you know, the CW is seen as a youth-oriented network. It's not cable, although it's sometimes seen as though it is. And so she's locked in by that. So yeah, I'm mad about that for sure. But I'm, I'm winking happily at the people who are edging around the problem. Uh, and I love the, there's a phrase that I'm looking for that I can't quite get to. It's not the emperor's new clothes, hiding in plain sight. That's mm-hmm. what it is. There are shows and people who are hiding in plain sight who are showing a more accurate version of women's sexual lives uh, that, you know, hey, sex in the city, you fell down on this one, right. didn't come close to. So I'm happy about the the Trojan horse of it all. I guess I'm just the cynic here. I think that, yeah, I agree with you that those shows are doing what they can, hiding in plain sight. But for every show like that, to Rachel Bloom's point, there are five that are perpetuating the thing that got her in a state of being upset and feeling anxious and embarrassed that she can't reach orgasm just through penetration. Right. And not only that, it's not just broadcast narrative shows. It's also all of the porn which, as we know, is much, much, much more explicit and accessible than it ever used to be. And the vast majority of straight porn is not spending a lot of time focusing on what has to actually be done to get both people to an orgasm. It's focusing on the vast majority. There are definitely people who are… I made a face there. That's why Duanna has cut in and said the the vast majority. Yes. You made the face that's like, well, if you knew what I know. (laughs) And I get that there are people who are making that stuff. And I think it's great. It's often not on the front page of my parents are going to be home in 14 minutes. I have time to look on Pornhub or RedTube or whatever. Right? Like, that's the stuff that takes a little… Yeah, I would argue that it's, yeah, porn for sure. But even, as you know, I read a lot of trash novels. Sure. And and so many of them are written by women. Should and, I should I take you to task for calling them trash? <laughs> well, I mean, people understand them to be like, you know, trashy, sexy, porn Smutty, books. as you would say. Um, and listen, I love them. I But I will say that a vast majority of those are written by women. And some of them are very, very well done. But many, many of them perpetuate the, I can get off on penetration alone. Now, those are written by women and for women. So it's coming from all over. This is a different discussion. I'm just going to like introduce it very quickly, but even in sex education, in many parts of our country and certainly in America, the 
the lack of sex education or the things that are not allowed to be introduced in sex education that are related to pleasure, that are related to understanding your own body, are not being taught. So at every level, even before you get to creative writing and creating stories, there is a block. That's why I have cynicism about this. Am I angry about it? I don't think I am angry about it because it's a much bigger problem than what we can do on television. I choose not to be cynical, even though everything you're saying is correct. And even though everything we're talking about is also, of course, erasing LGBT people for whom the portrayals of sex on television and film are almost never accurate about how they live. Even if there are characters who are gay, I'm thinking about the kids are all right with Julianne Moore and Annette Bening. I think we saw some kissing and that was about it. Like that's the sex life of two women who have teenage kids. But I choose to believe that the frustration about it, and you referred to the rolling back of the sex education curriculum in Ontario to something that is now uh, 21 years out of date, uh, among other places, is making people angry enough that there are changes. You reminded me that in the mid to late 90s, Oprah had uh, a doctor on to, and it was talk to your kids about sex. Mm -hmm. And she said, among other things, buy your 14-year-old daughter a vibrator. Mm -hmm. Her point was, if you teach her that the feelings that she gets are not tied to a boy, again, it was the mid-90s, then she will be less likely to think that she needs a boy, a boyfriend, and all the things that go with it, sex and all the dangers that it can have, to get to that place. People were so mad. Mm -hmm. They were so mad. And remember that Oprah's audience is entirely women. Yeah. And women who ostensibly know something about their sexuality um, or at least want to feel good or whatever it is, they were furious and outraged. And that episode is hard to find and hard to reference because of how mad people were. Uh So that was maybe too much ahead of its time. I choose to believe that Us talking about this, Rachel Bloom feeling like this and knowing that her feeling about feeling inadequate in her personal life is not a a legitimate feeling. That's not something she needs to feel inferior for. Uh, And all the broad cities and insecures and everything else that we're talking about are going to get us further down the road. I have to believe that. And I have to believe that those are available to boys and men as well to show them that what they're being shown is in fact a mistake. I want to hear about the teenage boy who's like, what's that? Why is she moving her hand like that? Sit down, little boy, and we'll tell you a story. <laughs> I hope so. But like I said, I'm the cynic and you're the hope. You go- you always do this. You say I'm contrary, but you turn me into the merry sunshine. Well, you are definitely wearing that hat today. Good. And finally… A really great email that we got a couple of weeks ago that we just want to share with everyone. Yeah, a really great email that is turning into an obsession. Uh, It reads, are you familiar with six? If no, here's a starter pack. And don't worry, we'll hit you guys up with the starter pack. Uh, So this is from Sadie, who goes on to explain, it's a musical about the wives of Henry VIII as a girl group 
With And then she goes on to say, with strong early 2000s Britney vibes and the backing tracks, the costumes are a delight. I would love more insight into their choreography. I also want more information as per their sources and research. Did they go the Lin-Manuel Miranda route using an academic approved history as their source? Or are they utilizing more of a popular understanding of these historical figures? Ultimately, I can't tell if it's good. My gut says yes. And the fact that I'm on rotation four of the cast recording says yes. But is it in guilty pleasure territory? It has some truly egregious lyrics. And the House of Holby number is pretty repulsive. Um, She goes on. And this gave me such a joy to receive. It is exactly what it sounds like. Except maybe, uh, what was the... What was the girl group that Nicole Schlesinger was the front of? Uh, Pussycat Dolls? Yes. It also has a bit of a Pussycat Dolls vibe right. for me. And, you know, the costumes are kind of like Nicole Kidman, Moulin Rouge. Okay. It was so, like, just delightful to see that it exists. The tagline is six, divorced, beheaded. <laughs> I love this too because I am one of those people, like like my royals knowledge, I don't have, I have a working knowledge of Henry VIII, had six wives, blah, 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 uh, you know, started the church so he could divorce this one, marry the next one. But I'm not super up on these people. And I feel like you might be. I feel like you would know your Catherines from your Anne's and whatnot. A little bit. I mean, like I know up to a certain point, like, at you know, by like fucking, I don't know, five or even four, it gets a little blurry. But, like, I do know a lot about Anne Boleyn. Right, of course. And I just, I don't know. I mean, like, listen, experimenting with this is so great. I wish I came up with the idea of girl banding the six wives of Henry VIII. Like, I think that is fucking genius. Because I think it is time to at least... Um, reimagine. I mean, you can't reimagine history, but at least reframe and reshape the way these stories are told. Yes, we get it. These women lost their heads. Like they had, they literally had their heads chopped off. But there's something like there, there is a way I think that's out there. And if you are an aspiring writer, go for it. There is a way to retell, for example, the Anne Boleyn story. Like, remember, in a way, not even in a way, you could say that Anne got the last laugh. She gave birth to Elizabeth. Sure. The first. Right. Who is widely recognized to be like the greatest queen, right? And so when you get to say that, looking back after several hundred years, there is a ha-ha-ness about it. And like, Every time we hear about Anne, yes, it's sad. She got her head chopped off. But could we reimagine like a a sort of a different tone to it is what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think… Do you get what I'm trying to say? I do, absolutely. Like, yeah, it's sad she died, but so did everybody back then. Like everybody yeah, in history is dead. dead. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, let's have fun with who they might have been in life or, yeah, what happened to them. And I think that's a really exciting ethos. I have to assume that they were inspired by Hamilton and by how fast oh, yeah. and loose they played. You know, I'm reminded of Rain, which was a CW show a few years ago, and it was uh, all about sort of the teenagers in 
the court of a place that I should know, probably Britain. Um, and, but it was very, you know, they were trying to be sexy, but they still had the gowns and the things. And I think it was, it had two, it had a foot in each world and didn't really land in either. And I think doing something like this, where you reimagine something totally like I'm, I'm sold, I'm in anything like this. You're like, okay, I can get it. Uh, and I have to say musical theater does a lot. I started into graphic novels because of fun home. Um, you know, because of Alison Bechtel and getting into that world, right. it can open up things to you. If you told me tomorrow that you had a musical about, I don't know, two atoms who rubbed up against each other and made hydrogen, I'd be like, okay, I'll watch that. Like, right. that sounds fun. Um, yeah, I think there's an irreverence to it that makes it really exciting. Yes. I think that is what I was trying to hit on. Like, Every telling of these stories about Anne and Elizabeth and Henry VIII, it's just, it's too serious. Well, you… And we get it. To your point, they're gone. They're, like, yeah. <laughs> like, whether they were, died of old age at the age of 34 yes. or, like, were yeah. beheaded, everybody passed. Yes. So we may as well tell their stories in a way that talks about the juice of them. Yeah. And it's kind of… You know, it's you don't want to underdo them, but like you're not giving them enough credit for being interesting when you're just like, and her head was tucked under her arm. Yeah. You you know, there's the museum docent who's quietly telling you about this before you file on in the museum. And there is some feminism here. I mean, especially with Anne Boleyn's story, right? Like she was controlled by her family. She was basically made to seduce the king. And by all accounts, she was so intelligent. Like, he was beguiled by her intelligence and her wiliness. And she was like a first-class manipulator until she couldn't spin any more webs. Like, there's something really sexy there that you can have fun with. See, I didn't know that, and I'm now more interested. It also brings to mind that uh, upcoming Rachel Vice movie, uh, which the is… The favorite. The favorite, which has some of those same tones. Correct. Right? It's living in that world. And but- yes. And the director, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, has done it in a way that is campy and, you know, bizarre. So when we talk about reimagining the tone or at least setting a different tone, we're not, it's not dour, put that way. No. And look, if you are unconvinced, uh, on the about page on the website, here's the one verse of lyrics that they list. All this time, they've been just one word in a stupid rhyme. So they picked up a pen and a microphone. History's about to get overthrown. Like, yeah, you just got goosebumps again. Like, yeah, why not? You're super in. It's fun. It's exciting. Uh, Divorced, beheaded, live in concert. I'm really, I'm very excited about this. I hope it makes its way across the pond. I, yeah. If you're a producer listening, we care over here as well. Um, And I also have to include Sadie's PS here before we close out because, She writes at the end of her note, P.S. I've always found the fact that Henry VIII married three Catherines and two Anne or Annas compelling, and the only one he truly loved, Jane, was the only wife with a non-repeat name. So Sadie knows her way to my heart to point out the names of it all, which, yes, Sadie, I feel you. Um, But yes, I'm truly into this. I've played this soundtrack. I encourage you to do the same. And if you need an extra bit of inspiration... Let me, once again, or maybe I've never done this, but defend uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. 
again, a reimagining or at least an attempt at a different tone to, to tell a story from that time. Yeah. It just spends time in a different way. Yeah. I remember most about that movie that there was like a lot of silence. You know, it's not all violins all the time as you're being carried from room to room. And it was anachronistic and it was like, you know, pink and the fashion and like silly. And I would, I dug it. You know why? I dug it because it was at the time, it wasn't like a BBC situation. Exactly. And yeah, I I think we're all super hungry for things that are new and different. Mm -hmm. Once again, this is that thing of embrace your nerd and do the thing that makes you nerdy in the way that is fun. Because there's the only person who can do this is somebody who deeply loves history and 2000s girl groups. Yeah. So, you know, marrying your nerdism is always going to be the thing that takes you to a new height of where you want to go. I'm super into it. Tell us what that Anne Boleyn story is. Good luck. We want to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Show Your Work. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your emails like Sadie's and the things you liked and didn't like and do at your work. Tell us all about them. And definitely leave reviews. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. Thank you so much once again. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.